So welcome indeed to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. I'm the magazine's editor, Oliver Condy. So here's a quick reminder first about our website at classical-music.com, where you can read all about the latest music happenings, read reviews of thousands of recordings, enjoy our free download of the week and a good deal more. Plus, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We even have an iPad edition available on the App Store. Finally, to keep abreast of what's happening, sign up to our newsletter via the website. And the October issue is out now. With me today in the studio are Deputy Editor Jeremy Pound and Editorial Assistant Freya Parr. Hello. Hi. So to kick us off, we've got a quick taster from our cover CD this month. It's a recording of Parry's Songs of Farewell, another choral work recorded especially for us this month by the Caris Singers, a very talented chamber group based in London. We're going to play you a piece of music called Phyllis, very madrigalian in its feel, quite unlike a lot of Parry's more reflective choral works. This is a, a very jolly piece with the underlying emotion to beware the steely heart of the vicious woman. was Phyllis by Hubert Parry, performed by the Caris Singers, and you can find that on this month's cover CD, a wonderful collection of choral works performed by the Caris Singers. Uh, incidentally, Caris was the name of Edward Elgar's daughter, so the ensemble is named after her. And so indeed, it's time for our music news. Jeremy, what's landed on your desk this month? Fairly soon after the release of the GCSE results, a large number of very prominent musicians wrote to the Times mourning the lack of take-up of GCSE music. Um, there's been a bit of a decline um, in recent years, and they, these figures see this as fairly alarming. Those names include the likes of Sir Antonio Papano, Simon Rattle, Tasmin Little, Julian Lloyd Webber, Nicola Benedetti, Mark Anthony Turnage, so a whole whole kind of range of very kind of top musicians. I'll just briefly read a bit of the, the letter because it's quite interesting. It says, Music should be the birthright of every child, but it is fast becoming the preserve of the elite. As yesterday's GCSE results show, the uptake of music at GCSE has fallen dramatically, down more than 15% in two years. The EBAC continues to damage not only the take-up of music at GCSE, but also at Key Stage 3. Now, EBAC um, refers to a combination of subjects that the government thinks is important for young people to study at GCSE. Um, that's the government's own words, actually, on its website. And it includes English language and literature, maths, sciences, geography and, or history and a language. 
so music isn't in there. And these these musicians feel that maybe that music needs a little bit more of a shove. I mean, music has been has always sort of been the the, the, the poor relation. I mean, you know, the more it's made the poor relation, the more politicians, people making these decisions, are going to be growing up in an education scene where music isn't important. That's why these decisions are made because music wasn't important for them. Mm. Um, so so it's 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 uh, I think it's a it, it, it's a tide that's going to be very difficult to hold back. I think it is. I think it is. I think it's. Um, and to be fair, though, these um, a lot of these musicians are, to- are talking and talk and walking the walk. They really have put themselves forward to try and actually push this agenda. And I know that Nicholas Daniel, the oboist, is kind of starting one or two initiatives to actually try and promote the kind of music in schools. And he's had a lot of backing from these musicians. When I recently did my interview with Jess Gillam. Mm. Um, the saxophonist who's appearing at the last night of the proms, she was insistent that we included music education as part of part of the interview. But one of those signatories um, is, is actually Julian Lloyd Webber, and, and he's been doing lots for decades and decades. But you always get the feeling that they're sort of two steps forward, three steps back. You know, that there is progress made. You know, that letter will make an impact for a few days and then the politicians will forget it. It'll be, you know, mm. tomorrow's chip paper. Um, and it's all very sad, you know, uh, uh, Music does, you know, music is a universal language. This is something we keep saying, you know, where where words can't express an emotion. You know, music comes in, it, it makes you apparently more intelligent and more able to work with your colleagues. It makes you more of a team member. It's got benefits over and above the fact that music is very beautiful and 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 um, so. I, what 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 is there to do? What can we do? Well, I think there's been a drop. I read somewhere in um, a lot of foreign languages, like Chinese and Russian, have taken a massive increase in popularity when things like French and Italian have taken a drop because I think there's much more pressure on people at a much earlier age to consider going into business and they're, everyone's shepherded in a certain way in which often things that are slightly more creative are cast aside and I think music is definitely one of those elements particularly that's thought of as more of a hobby and I think it does need to take much more of a, a leading Stance. Importantly, we also talk about um, music education in the October issue, which we're going to be talking about later on mm. in this podcast. But that's at the sort of further education stage. Well, let's move on in that case, because we will touch on this again. Um, Freya, what's what's been happening this month for you? Um, so as ever, as Christmas is apparently right around the corner, Radio 3 have launched their annual carol competition. And this year, um, composers are invited to write a four-part choir setting of a poem. And that's an annual thing. And then this year... The person who has written the poem is the is the poet laureate Caroline Duffy, um, and as always, the six best will be performed by the BBC singers on Radio Three, and listeners will vote for the winner. So, what are our thoughts on the choice of Caroline Duffy? Well, it's, it's fascinating. Um, tantalisingly, we don't actually know which words mm. we're going to be done at the moment because they're going to be revealed on air fairly soon. So, we don't know exactly what they're going to be setting. Yes, will they be Christmassy or will they be festive or will they be wintry or mm. will they be, you know, entirely steering clear of any kind of religious content? I'd quite like it if it was a kind of something quite philosophical and gloomy for a change. Well, I don't know why. T- Maybe that's, that's her, my sort of... That is her intake. tone, usually. She's quite political and social and... I haven't read many Christmas poems that she's done, so it'd be quite interesting if they do something a bit different with it. I have to say I've really enjoyed these um, cow competitions in the past, hearing what people have come up with. Um, It's always astonishing the skill. 
Mm. that kind of people who aren't really published composers actually manage to display. And then you hear them and think, wow, it's, it's, it's something to look forward to, certainly. Mm. There are some very talented composers out there, and it is a, a marvellous opportunity to, to, you know, I mean, Christmas is a time where choral music is really to the fore. I mean, we all love choral music here in this room, you know, because, you know, I sing in choirs, and Jeremy, you used to sing at New College Oxford, and Freya, you sing in a choir here in Bristol. Mm-hmm. So, But I think choral music for the rest of the, you know, con- population... Mm probably really makes a, a stand at Christmas time. Yeah. So I think it's it's a real chance for choral music to, to rise to the top. I'd love to have a go kind of composing for the competition myself. We but a, a, I'm, well, a, I'm not, I don't think I'm allowed to. And B, <laughs> my effort would be absolutely dreadful anyway. So probably probably a good thing that I can't. <laughs> Maybe next year you can do a little yes. Christmas project. So go on to the website, uh, bbc.co.uk slash radio3, and there you'll see the words for the Caroline Duffy poem that you can set. So my story is a little bit lighter. Um, I was very amused to see a Chinese festival uh, shifting a, uh, a Blutner piano um, across a mountain range using a helicopter, just calling to mind the Two Moors Festival uh, back in 2007 when piano movers managed to drop a Bosendorfer into a ditch and smash it, a £26,000 piano the festival had been saving up for two years to buy. Um, all very amusing. If you've got the money, you, you, you shift a piano with helicopter and there's some wonderful pictures um, this month in BBC Music Magazine so you can see the sort of slightly crazy stunt um, that this festival um, uh, pulled off. Two things spring to mind here. Firstly, isn't it interesting how going right back to Laurel and Hardy and the PG Tips adverts, that the piano has been become the symbol of something which is difficult to move. <laughs> it is that it's, it's almost like a set piece of of comedy or anything like this. So when actually that two moors accident happened, it was actually kind of like a it was perfect for us. And we actually we actually I seem to remember we wrote a piece about it of fifteen ways to destroy a piano or something yes. like that. And yes, it's it's also when when you see pianos sort of smashed down from cranes onto the onto the floor That's below. Painful. There's something <laughs> devastating about it. That sort of dead jangle that you hear. Well, in cartoons as well, kind of characters get crushed by falling pianos and things like that as well, isn't it? It's, a, it's, a, it's an it's odd strange. It's very strange. The other thing which also sp- sprung to mind when you mentioned this is that um, if ever you want to get good publicity for a festival or something like that, mm. get a piano in a weird place and someone yeah. playing it and you can guarantee that the press will launch onto it. I remember a while back there was these wonderful pictures of Leif Oranzenes playing this grand piano stuck up on a, a Norwegian clifftop or something like that and the press loved it. So mm. That's the kind of a, a good and, thing to do. And wasn't there a piano, that, albeit a digital piano, that was shifted to the uh, to St Kilda? That's right. For James yes. McMillan to go and play some Scottish tunes on, although some tunes that were allegedly written in St Kilda. And of course, there was that piano recently that was shifted to an iceberg in the Arctic or the Antarctic. It's a good sell. I forget which. It's, it's a, a brilliant sell. Yeah. Um, they always used to shift a piano to the top of a mountain mm-hmm. to sell the festival there. Here, actually, it is a mountain. Actually, I forgot forgot to mention the Chinese shifted it to the top of the Tianjin mountain uh, which is a thousand meters up so um, so there's the, there's the moral of the tale you want to get in the papers get yourself a piano and get it there in one piece <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> indeed so now it's time to talk about this month's magazine and uh, to kick us off here's a clue as to who's on our cover this month
That was a moment from Chopin's cello sonata in G minor, and it was played by cellist Stephen Isselis and pianist Dennis Varjon. Uh, Stephen Isselis is, of course, on our cover this month. Why is he there? Well, partly because he is celebrating his 60th birthday, and I think he doesn't look anything like 60. Same age as Madonna. Same, and, <laughs> and Lenny Henry as well, I was discovering yesterday. He was just turned 16. Um, but, yes... Um, for the for the interview, um, Helen Wallace, who is our sort of one of our resident cello experts, went to meet him at his house, and they discussed all sorts of things. I'm not going to give too many spoilers away because obviously we want people to read it in the magazine. Though he does say some very tantalising things about projects about recording possibly Schumann, Ades, and Tavner, which are things which I'd really like to look out for. Mm. Mm. Yes, I mean his his relationship with Tavner is, is you know is is very special. Um, uh, he seems to sort of have captured a sort of a zeitgeist at the time with his recording of the Protected Veil. Exactly, and uh, within the interview, he kind of expresses his frustration that perhaps he didn't hasn't recorded enough of his stuff yet, and there's kind of a few things which he which have let he's left untouched so far, which he might address, which is. It, if, you, if you're a Taverner fan, is actually kind of quite a tantalising project. Mm, he's got I, such an encyclopaedic knowledge of these composers as well. He treats them like companions. You get that the whole way through the piece, is that he has such an intimate relationship with them. But it's, it's interesting. I remember, I mean, it's not in this piece, but I remember another interview we did with him. He talked about his recording of Bach, the Bach solo suites, and he, he basically saying, well, the only reason he recorded them is because his dad wanted him to. Um, <laughs> and he didn't feel yet that he was ready to tackle them. I suppose it's an age-old thing, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. musicians think, I'm not ready to play Bach, and uh, all people accusing young pianists or cellists or violinists of not being ready yet to play Bach. Well, it's all nonsense, really. But I was just quite amused that Steve Nisslis sort of, you know, you know, one of the great cellists still uh, found himself slightly uneasy about putting them to, that, to, to down on record. That's classic Stephen Isselis because he, he's, he's always, you always get candor with Stephen Isselis. There's no such thing as a dull Stephen Isselis interview. He's always very open and he expresses mm-hmm. his opinions. And it's the same in this one as well. So we're not going to give up too much away, but he does say things which you'll think, oh, wow, he's, you know, he's opened up here. Mm. So the feature I'm going to talk about this month is a uh, piece about uh, not so much a new genre, but a genre that really is making waves. It's, it's, I suppose, the best way to describe it is post-classical. A lot of artists taking digital sounds um, and taking you know, analog sounds of pianos, but sort of um, mutating them, distorting them, using sort of beaten up upright pianos, putting the mics close in so you can hear the action of the pianos. So, so it's, it's as much a sort of ambient soundscape as it is. Is a, a classical or a music album. Uh, interestingly, you know, it's, it's it's artists that are classically trained, for want of a better word. People like Poppy Ackroyd, Max Richter, um, the, the the the, um, uh, the late Johann Johansson. Um, uh, Olafur Arnolds, who wrote the music for Broadchurch. So all these people are, are sort of writing this music that is appealing to a completely new generation of listener. Yes, it's not everyone's cup of tea. It's interesting. It's, I think it's a. It's funny. It's, I think it's a, a type of music that has a real core following, but might take a while to kind of really bring a large number into the into its fold. I'd be mm. interested. I think it's a great segue. A lot of my friends who are not musical have come across that and then segued into more traditional classical music, which I think is no bad thing. And of course, the Proms this year had quite a few. Um, 
sort of composers of this type of genre. So they had Anna Meredith on the first night of the proms, which is something a little different. So I guess when that's being platformed in that way, and people people told me about that prom who don't aren't even musical, and they're like, oh, you're going to go to that one? And it's like, well, that's great if that can then incorporate them into the fold more. Well, I noticed a lot of these composers are being used, as I said, about Oliver Arnold's for Broadchurch. Mm. I mean, I watched the, um, the show Patrick Melrose, which was um, on Sky Atlantic, and they do Tauschka, Who's, who's a yeah. well-known post-classical experimentalist composer for the soundtrack. That was very, very uh, effective because what you had is music that sounded quite traditional but was sort of sort of slightly, um, what's the word? It, it, it was slightly distorted. There was something slightly out of place about it and there was something very much something out of place about the drama. So I think it's, it, it's music that does sort of confound expectations. Mm. So it's interesting. So we take a take a look at that this month in depth. Um, Claire Jackson uh, talks to uh, quite a few pioneers of this genre. So just before we move on, here's a quick taster of the kind of stuff that we talk about this month. And this is an extract from Max Richter's Blue Notebooks. So that was an extract from Max Richter's Blue Notebooks. Freya, it's time for a bit more education. So this month, John Evans explored how UK's conservatoires and music colleges are preparing their students for later life in the changing landscape of being a young music graduate and all that entails. Um, and I initially, when this brief was given and we were talking about the piece initially, I thought it would be quite a negative outlook because I think for a lot of university students, I felt quite unprepared entering the the big bad world um, as an English graduate. But actually, it seems as though music colleges are actually doing a lot more than some universities in some um, some respects. Um, and so we, uh, John Evans talks to Julian Lloyd Webber about the kind of outlook and he also talks to some current students and graduates. And I actually talked to my younger sister, who's a first year student studying music at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. And I thought, once I got through all the cynicism of her being like, oh, it's going to be a very bleak landscape, whatever, I actually found out that actually she's even quite prepared, having done one year in music college. They've had classes about learning about music and society and learning how to kind of kind of enter this freelance world, which actually is becoming a lot more common for non-musicians as well. So multi-hyphenates and people with multiple streams of income are... It's a it's a common trait amongst... It's, it's all about the portfolio career, isn't it? Yeah. It's all about seeing that opportunity 
there and seeing another opportunity in another place and, and not sort of thinking, I'm going to be an orchestral musician or I'm going to be a teacher or I'm going to be a soloist or I'm going to be a chamber musician. This is about grabbing all the opportunities wherever you can and, and putting it all together and making a very good... And it is actually quite difficult to do that because you've got to get your name out and you've got to keep um, reserving time for practising and you've got to invest you know money in perhaps a bit of PR and uh, um, you know getting your presence on social media channels. You know, this is this is stuff that kids in the last 10 years um, have had to suddenly learn what to, learn how to do it. Earlier on this summer, actually, I went to Birmingham Conservatoire for a, a careers advice day where I and <laughs> and other experts, I was going to say people who actually really do know their stuff, were giving advice to students as to what to do next. It was largely third year students we were talking to. And again, the portfolio career was very much top of the agenda there. It was a very inspiring day, actually. And it was great to see Birmingham Conservatoire investing so much time and effort into developing their students' careers after they've left the conservatoire. Mm. I think it's good that actually across the board, not even within the music industry, people are exploring the portfolio career much more. And as a result, I think everyone is slightly more prepared and there's lots more literature out there and um, sort of workshops in, at universities and colleges preparing students for it, which is promising. I mean, it's as much telling students what there is out there as much as preparing them mm. to go and get those opportunities. I mean, I can remember, I mean, I did English as well, I did English and French, and I had no idea what was out there. <laughs> Nobody told me that there was a, a world of publishing, that there was a world of of all sorts of opportunities to, I don't know, give talks or um, review or be a critic or, you know, work on a magazine. I had no idea. Um, and it's, I think it's a real responsibility of the teaching profession to go out there and actually learn themselves they don't know either. Yeah. People teaching have no idea what's out there either. I think part of the message too is don't be too hidebound by your degree. I mean, I did a classics degree mm. and I've not used a single <laughs> Greek verb since, so, you know. Well, you'd show off sometimes. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think, I think the lesson is really that universities and colleges are wising up to this and they need to do that much more. Mm. Agreed. So it's time for First Listen, and this is where we bring together a recording that's caught our ears over the past couple of weeks. And I'm going to kick off with a, a recording uh, called Musica Nova. Uh, it's another wonderful collection, um, curated, I suppose is the word, because they really are curated. They're proper sort of cohesive programmes uh, by Jordi Saval and his Hesperian 21. Here's a quick clip of the piece of music I'm just going to chat briefly about.
So that was um, Orlando Gibbons's uh, four-part in Nominee. Um, one of a number of tracks on this recording that demonstrates how the vile consort um, was basically invented at the end of the 15th, beginning of the 16th century, and how, it, how the vials were used to imitate the human voice. And as you can hear from this piece, it's very much a sort of a vocal, a very choral texture to it. Um, Musica Nova um, being the title of this, this recording, um, new music, uh, basically signifying what composers were doing. They were basically bringing new instruments together and creating new styles of music. And this is such a delicious program of, 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 of music that really demonstrates the, the real sea change that was happening at the time. So you've got music by Gibbons, you've got music by uh, John Dowland, you've got William Braid, uh, an English composer. Then you move across to uh, the Iberian Peninsula, you've got music from Germany, um, Italian music, all of them really really discovering what music, how music was changing, you know, in terms of dancing, in terms of choral music. Um, a very exciting, very, very uh, arresting recording. What I love about all Hesperian 21 discs is that they are quite like a, a geography and history lesson combined in and music lesson all combined into one because you always get these fantastically lavish sleeve notes which are immaculately researched. The playing is immaculate, immaculately researched. It's just, they, they, they really are a classic case of how you can actually put lavish care and attention onto a recording project and turn it into something really quite special. Freya, what have you got this month for us? Um, so I have brought, uh, it's called Noringen. That is probably not the right pronunciation, but it's a, basically a disc of Baroque tunes and Norwegian folk traditional music um, performed on this slightly unlikely combination of saxophone and organ. So we're just going to start off by listening to The Sicilian by Maria Theresia Paradis. You know, that sort of reminds me of, of the combination of trumpet and organ, which always works very well, actually. I think woodwind instruments work beautifully with uh, the organ in a way that I think I, I wish more composers would would realise, actually. Mm, I, th I just thought the combination of the saxophone with the kind of muted pipes throughout, they have that kind of combination, quite a few of the tracks. I just thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was really lovely and quite virtuosic as well. Just surprised me as a disc. And that was on Lao Classics. Jeremy, what have you got for us this month? Right, well, I've been reading a little bit on social media how some people have um, complained that maybe the Bernstein centenary celebrations have been slightly overdone. Well, to them, <laughs> I say tough, because I'm going to continue them a little bit longer. Utterly inspired by the LSO's recent performance of On the Town at the Proms, um, I'm now going to recommend their new recording of Bernstein's Wonderful Town, which is... Um, 
Bernstein wrote it in 1953, so it's nine years later than On the Town. And this is, as I say, it's the LSO, and it is conducted by Simon Rattle. Chapter one. Now the first way to lose a man. You've met a charming fellow and you're out for a spin. The motor fails and he just wears a helpless grin. Don't bat your eyes and say, what a romantic spot we're in. Just get out, crawl under the car, tell him it's the gasket, and fix it in two seconds flat with a bobby pin. That's a good way to lose a man. He takes you to a baseball game. You sit knee to knee. He says, so the next guy up at bat will bunt. You'll see. Don't say, oh, it's a that was um, the character of Ruth, um, sung there by Alicia Umfris. And for those who don't know Wonderful Town, it's basically the story of two sisters who go from Ohio to New York and kind of seek their fortune there. As with a lot of Bernstein musicals, not an awful lot happens. If you, <laughs> if you know On the Town, for instance, absolutely nothing happens there either. <laughs> um, but it's great fun. And this is a really fantastic recording. It's actually got um, Danielle Denise in the part of Eileen. So it's got very starry cast. And if you did see that prom of On the Town, and you saw the amazing orchestral playing by the LSO under John Wilson. And they really do, they, they are brilliant at Bernstein, and it shows on this disc here. Mm. Yeah, there's been, there's been a fantastic spate of Bernstein recordings. I and mean, of course, we have the Warner Classics uh, recording of the symphonies, um, you know, countless West Side Story, um, Con Deeds, Wonderful Town on the Town. It's just a fantastic chance to explore, um, you know, his, his sort of multifarious skills. Really. Rattle has recorded Wonderful Town before, actually, with the LSO about quite a while ago with a cast including Thomas Hampson. And actually, I think I prefer this recording. It was actually recorded at the Barbican last year, live at the Barbican. And it's got a real vibrancy to it. It would have been amazing to see. <laughs> yes. I also know you love Ben Stein's mass, don't you, Jeremy? Absolutely. <laughs> <That's the> one. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of uh, the October Magazine's podcast. Join us again next month when we'll be discussing what's on the cover and what's inside the November issue. So until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. The BBC Music Magazine Podcast.